Hello and welcome back to Identity Architects, the podcast that's dedicated to spotlighting individuals who are changing the way that data is used to deliver better customer experiences. I'm your host, Ben Cicchetti, and for this episode, our VP of Product Marketing, Devin de Blasio, spoke to Chris Hawke, Director of Media Strategy and Investment Performance at Papa John's International. Devin and Chris have an awesome discussion about their approach to collaboration, the future of data-driven media strategies, the role of technology such as data cleanrooms in that future, and much, much more. Before I hand it over to Devin and Chris, just a reminder to hit that subscribe button wherever you enjoy podcasts, you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But now, without any further delay, here's Devin and Chris. Hello, I'm Devin de Blasio, InfoSum's Vice President of Product Marketing. I'm extremely excited to be joined by Chris Hawk, Director, Media Strategy and Investment Performance at Papa John's International. Chris, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me, Devin. I'm really glad to, for you to be on the, uh, the the show, talking with us. And full disclosure, uh, Chris and I go a ways back as uh, prior you know prior colleagues uh, in a formal life at a formal uh, job. But we're going to jump in and talk about all things um, brand side, identity, clean rooms, media strategy, the whole nine. But first, I want to give Chris the chance to introduce himself. Uh, he has a very very vast and wide experience on the brand side, the agency side, the vendor side. He really has covered all uh, sides of the media coin, I guess you could say, three-sided coin. Uh, but Chris, just to tell the audience you know, who you are, you know, where you work, what you do, and kind of where you came from to get here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so I'm currently the Director of Media Strategy and Investment Performance at Papa John's International, based in Atlanta. Uh, my position is all things data and measurement. I know we're going to get a lot more into that, so I won't dwell. Uh, you know, I, I'm someone who moved to New York out of college, dreaming of being a writer, and then I fell into digital media completely on accident, right? It was like the job to figure out how to be a writer, but then I found I was actually a lot better at storytelling with numbers than editorial stuff, storytelling. So I, I just stuck with it, right? Yeah. And uh, like you mentioned, right, I've, I've gone across the Loomascape, as I like to say, right? I started out pub side at Time Inc. way back in the day, went all the way across down to the brand side, uh, all within this data-driven marketing universe. So I, I've been very lucky to see what that means to all the components in the ecosystem. Well, I'm sure that helps your position as well. And we're going to go into a little bit of the strategy side and kind of your your ethos and kind of how you think about data, strategy, identity, you know, all the great things that encompass your job. But I mean, I'm sure everyone on the call, again, we're a global company, uh, but, you know, obviously Papa John's is also a global brand. And for anyone who doesn't know uh, this pizza giant, um, it'd be very strange. But can you just give us a little bit of information in terms of, you know, the advertising and marketing strategy of Papa John's, the brand, right? Obviously, everyone knows the delicious pizza and everything else that they sell. Um, but I want to know a little bit more about the the advertising and marketing side of that organization. Yeah. So from a paid media lens, everything is about that sight, sound, and motion content, right? Whether we're talking a linear television ad, connected television, a video that's in feed in a social platform, does it really matter where that video experience is coming from? It's, it's about showing something that's sensory driven, which, which food is right. Um, watching the uh, cheese pull as you, uh, you know, seeing the, the heat kind of come off things. It just, it's so much more impactful when you're talking about a product like ours versus what are you getting a banner at, right? Even if it's a beautiful image. Uh, more broadly, you know, we're, we're a consumer first company, right? And so we like to use all marketing channels, whether it's paid or owned or, or earned, et cetera, uh, to bring new people into our brand and to find new ways to delight our existing customers. That sounds delicious. <laughs> I wish I ate before this call. Um, so I want to dig in a little bit in terms of just just going on what you're, you're the path you're headed right now about the media strategy. So I want to get a little bit nerdy in terms of ad tech, right? I think you and I can both can nerd out a little bit in terms of the role of building out Papa John's strategy. And so can you just let me tell me a little bit more? You said sight, sound, motion. Can you just give me a little bit, double click a little bit further down into that? Like, 
are there specific channels you are marketing in, not marketing in? You can go as broad as you want. You don't have to go specific, but um, yeah. is it really all about the the awareness of of Papa John's and uh, getting them, you know, in your feed, whether it's the streaming audio or seeing them on a TV screen, or are you actually looking for some direct communication um, from from the consumers themselves, or is it a mixture? It's a mixture. Uh, that's, first of all, it's a great question, right? Uh, but yeah, it's 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 a mixture. Um, we look, there are two ways you can make money as a brand, right? You can get people who have not bought your product to buy it, or you can get people who are buying your product to buy more. Right. So when you think about marketing in any format, paid or paid or otherwise, we have to recruit people into our brand and we have to find ways to get our existing customers to want to buy one more item in their normal, you know, purchase window or add a new purchase occasion. Right. Uh, and so for us, right, I think we're, we're, we're the air quoting upstart type pizza chain, because I mean, if you look at earnings over the past two years, we've been absolutely crushing it mm-hmm. and we've been growing and growing share. So it's not that people don't know who we are and we're brand to be like, Hey, guess what? We're a pizza company too, but we have room to grow, right? We have the ability to actually get deeper penetration into, into households that might've traditionally been a Domino's or a pizza hut type yeah. household. So there is a lot that we're doing to let people understand here are the new and interesting products that we have. Here's what our brand stands for and trying to make people, you know, think of us more when it comes time to, are they going to go to McDonald's? Are they going to order pizza? Is it going to be Uber Eats? Like what's it going to be trying to consider us? Now we're also trying to be extremely intelligent about how we use our first party data when it comes to our DR efforts. Right. And when you get to those DR efforts, you can be a bit more focused on things like banners and native because these are people who eat a lot of your food. They don't need to have the tantalizing image really to consider buying it, right? You're, you're bringing some to the table to remind them what they love, or you're introducing something, whether it's an offer or a new product that is right in their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit easier to just kind of find ways to show up around the addressable ecosystem as they're, you know, looking at different forms of content, just sort of nudge them right. and, and, and get them over the finish line. And when I get to the first party stuff in a minute, obviously this wouldn't be an InfoSum podcast where we're talking about first party data strategy. Um, but really just to, again, to talk about the specific partners you're working with. Um, and again, not to name them by name, you can if you want, but again, it's more so the type of, of, of organizations that we've seen really grow um, over the past, you know, three years, right? Really since the pandemic really hit hit a, hit its stride, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, we've seen what we call like tier two publishers, emerging publishers, right? That's gaming, streaming audio, CTV, retail media networks. How have you seen those essentially uh, held Papa John's if you are investing in those organizations over the past you know, few years to help with the sight sound motion, both from an awareness, but also from a DR perspective? Have they been more willing to collaborate, more willing to try new things as this emerging uh, or, you know, market that's trying to compete with the larger walled gardens. So just what's your perspective of that? Yeah. So I would actually argue that streaming audio and streaming television is tier one. I think at this point that is so permeated into yeah. how consumers, you know, live their daily lives, whether you want to argue that it's a mature advertising channel relative to other things, like, sure, we can, we can have that argument all day, Yeah, yeah. but if, if you're a brand like ours, trying to get people to, you know, have their mouth water and want to make that order. If you're not in CTV, for example, mm-hmm. and you're not utilizing that ability, I mean, for suppression, explicit targeting, just being in the right content environments to augment linear, because we all know that as great as linear is, it's skewing older and you, you got to have to, you know, you have to balance everything out. Um, you know, if, if you're not in CTV, you're, you're definitely missing. Uh, so it's, it's not really a try scenario anymore, right? It's, it's not, we're out of the trying phase. This is a must have in your media plan phase at all, just determines and determines based on how much scale and volume you want to put into those channels, I guess. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, coordinating across 
the fragmented CTV ecosystem is it could be a whole hour worth of a podcast. We could do another time. Uh, but yeah, being in that space is definitely something you need to do. Um, gaming is a really interesting one to me, right? So I think there, there are brands who have been more involved in, in gaming than, than Papa John's and have done a good job of it. But I think most companies are still trying to figure out how to be authentic in a gaming environment. It's just, it's mm-hmm. so different, right? You know, if, if you're using a uh, streaming TV service that has ads, that 15 or 30 second ad is something you're used to. Like, it's not weird. You're not, may, you may not like an ad, but like still, it's, it's not this way out of left field experience. I think the gaming universe, right, it's this very personal, you're in this, immersed in this world, this storyline, whatever the type of game is, and to try and think about how you play around that, mm-hmm. whether it's esports, events, uh, you have these companies that try to like put banners and billboards and stuff in games. It's, just, it's There's so many things that you can do, and a lot of it can have a very um, adverse effect because gamers are not shy about saying what they like and don't like. <laughs> and, you got to worry about yeah. brand safety there, I guess. Yeah. Say, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. Like we, th- there's a natural alignment for sure. And we're, we're definitely moving more in that direction. But again, you have to be very thoughtful about how you come to life in it. Yeah, to PC and gaming go hand in hand. I would yeah. guess you would say, right. but again, and it's almost the 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 ultimate um, native format. They just, I don't think it's. We're still early on how that's going to actually be done at scale or be done in a you know, say brand safe manner whatsoever. But I mean, obviously, there's there's major gaming organizations wanting to do that, and it seems like brands are are looking to participate. I think it just you know we're just at the precipice of that really. I think taking off at least for my own personal. Uh, you know, point of view from from the clients that we work with here and InfoSum from a gaming perspective. Um, so I want to switch gears even further, but just slightly talking about, talking about media strategy, really about data strategy. So we talked about the utilization of first party data for things like DR, right? Le- needing less of that for, for general awareness-based campaigns. Um, but I want to talk about, you know, first, second, second party, third party data, zero party data, every number of the spectrum has its own uh, data type, right? But to you, is it all just data uh, by a different name? Or do you see a clear difference in how the value is applied or how the data is gathered? Like, how do you kind of think about uh, that ecosystem? Yeah, there's definitely a difference. Uh, And so first of all, I'm going to go on a tangent. So zero party data isn't a real thing. And I I love... I loathe that this has become such a buzzword in the industry, right? Because all these vendors that talk about zero party data are like, you can, we'll help you survey your consumers and you can map that to your CRM record. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's not new. Surveying consumers is not new. Surveying your own consumers is not due. Buying research is not new. This has been a thing that's been done for many, many years. Uh, it's just got a new coat of paint. Uh, so for whatever <laughs> reason, it's having a moment. Uh, so I would argue if you are doing that, it's first-party data, right? Right. Um, to, to, to me, right, when we talk about actual types of data, uh, as a brand or as a publisher, right, your first-party data is your consumer-level information, right, like what you know about a real person that your company organically collects from the way it interacts with people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it should be the lifeblood and your foundation for the type of work that you go to. Now, second-party data can be extremely impactful and additive so long as the two parties are on the same page, right? Right. Um, That's a very important yeah. distinction, I think, to make, right? Second-party data requires some level of either trust or some level of privacy-safe engagement with that other party because um, it is first-party data you're talking about just in a second-party context. And I think that's one of those things in the marketing playbook back in the day, I think when we both started was not a thing that people talked about. We just skipped over from first to third. And I think second became, is such a crucial component, especially of where we are today, right? So sorry, not to, not to you know, deride, but I think that's, that's something to, to you know, definitely to focus on. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I very much agree. Uh, I mean, it, it goes, there, there's stuff that's, I don't want to say like off the shelf that you can ascertain value from. And I'm talking about like what, 
video in at the nice spot and Roku have from like viewership data, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, but there's also, you know, really interesting data that can be gleaned from publisher partners if you're a brand or, you know, like we, we sell Pepsi products, right? So there's stuff that we and Pepsi could be doing that's potentially interesting, right? It, it doesn't quite matter the actual entity you'd want to collaborate with. Mm -hmm. It's just taking a step back and thinking about how those two specific first party data sets can do something complementary, or frankly, if they can do something complementary, right? Um, brute forcing two data sets together for the sake of brute forcing two data sets together isn't going to help anybody. Yeah. I completely agree. And again, you already, you already stole the word of my next question anyway, but data collaboration, I want to double click into that too, as well. Obviously you kind of stole it out from the next question I was going to ask, but it's only April or May, depending on when this actual episode airs, but it's clear that this year specifically alone, the talk about collaboration between organizations has just been through the roof, right? I think everyone understands that looking ahead at 2023, living through a pandemic, living through you know, everything that Google and Apple have done in terms of ID deprecation or potential ID deprecation, and then the expectation of privacy. All of these things, this culmination, this perfect storm has really led to a point where we're now starting to see people reach across the aisle, shaking hands, like you said, brand to brand, you know, vendor to vendor, publisher to publisher. And so we're seeing collaboration really take hold as really the next evolution of our ecosystem, of our industry. And so Again, putting aside competitive differences seems to be something that people are willing to do. The sharing of, of data, whether it's first or second or even third party data, seems to be on the rise because, you know, reliable things like cookies are no longer there. So in terms of data collaboration, you know, what are your predictions as we look ahead? Where is going to collaboration going to go? What are the use cases? And what is Papa John's looking to do with, with collaborating with their, their specific partners? Sure. So... What I fundamentally believe is that brands and publishers and then brands and mutual business partners, again, like some of my example of how we work with Pepsi, right. uh, those sorts of relationships are going to be pushed closer and closer together as more laws get signed and as uh, more of these large tech companies like the Googles of the world pull the plug on the things they're going to pull the plug on, right? Or continue to restrict access to things. Um, and that, that's, that makes me happy. I love where this, that's where this is going. Right. Um, and I think it's, it's not because people are like, oh my gosh, I can't click the easy Google button anymore. Now I have to figure this out. I think it's really just an awakening to the fact that premium content providers, big brands that have a strong connection to consumers sit on a lot of the best actual information that is out there. Yeah. And instead of just throwing money at third party data and the infinite reach that was never actually infinite reach on the internet in the first place, right? The promise, right? Yeah, the, the, exactly. the promise of one to yeah. one, one to many, one to everyone. Yeah. 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 And it's just to make everybody just take a step back and say, okay, well what are we what were we trying to do in the first place? Okay, I want someone to buy a pizza and I want them to be able to see this video ad and this place over here mm -hmm. is really well at premium content. A lot of people are going to watch and I want to get my ad on that, on that page, right? You, you don't need 40 different technology players and 15 third party data segments to do that work. You need to have a thoughtful discussion between brand and publisher and to, you know, figure out what a mutually beneficial strategy for data application actually is. Right. Um, and I think the, but to, to, to make sure I don't stray too far from your question, it's fine. Uh, what I'm really excited about and what I think is going to happen over the next two years is a lot of the bad tech that's out there is just going to get, this is going to just be wiped off the map, right? There's a lot of folks out there who are sort of hiding in the shadows or doing something to be somewhat relevant yeah. or just hanging on by a thread until some of these changes come along. And I think that great calling of these bad actors is going to catapult the kind of things we were just talking about forward because people who may have been afraid hmm. to get in, in this game and figure it out are going to have to. Right. No, that, that's a perfect, and again, another soundbite, the, the, the bad tech. I love that. Um, 
And so again, we're seeing all these changes. I just listed all of the changes that we've seen over the past few years in a row. And we hear this from every time you hear in a podcast like this, or you see someone in stage or on a webinar, everyone's talking about the same like core, you know, issues that we're running into. But it seems like this can be reframed as an opportunity. Is that that's that's essentially kind of what I'm seeing from you is that this is a return to basics. This is a return to actual strategy, strategic thinking, right? When you're actually doing a collaborative effort between one party or multiple parties. So are you seeing that, you know, what other types of things have actually opened up for marketers and really what has opened up for Papa John's in this new horizon? Are there things that you're thinking about differently now than you have before? Because you have to, but also because it's it's a really interesting opportunity that you're seeing in front of you. Yeah. So for, for, for me, what's kind of become apparent, like A, just because of the places we've mutually worked, right? Mm-hmm. And then just, you know, being someone who actually reads the trades for, for our industry. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of confusion out there. A lot of people are worried. Uh, I think a lot of concerns are a bit inflated, right? About what's happening in the near term versus the long term. It's, it's just sort of hysteria right now, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what that's what what's good about this is it's forced people who were in that this is the way we've always done it. Don't talk to me about something new, camp. Yeah. To just finally give in and say, I don't know where this stuff is going. There are too many things to keep up with. What should we be doing? What do we have to go focus on? And once that happens, a lot of great creative thinking and interesting work can start being done. And a lot of what we want to do, and you know, this is our, our, our personal opinion, my personal opinion. It may not be the, the norm, but uh, if we're trying to get back to this conversation, brand to brand, brand to publisher, Mm-hmm. and what that mutual value proposition is, it has to start on the media planning side versus the activation side, right? What what we've lived through the past several years with the rise of R2B and everything else is people defaulting the tool to make the buying decision and being disintermediated by the ad tech ecosystem yeah. versus, you know, what is it I'm trying to do from a planning aspect, right? Like we're skipping... We're creating, as brands, you're creating these big, beautiful stories of how you want your content to come to life and the things you want it to drive. And then you had this, in my opinion, often a a break from what that theory is to what you put into practice because you had these this, this sort of uh, – the use of the kind of data, like, like first-party data and then the measurement systems that are out there was isolated to these activation platforms yeah. and it really wasn't a media planning tool. So again, you had like consumer research driving a plan, first by data driving activation, and there was no real connection at the end of the day. You were kind of trying to force it. What I'm really excited about is we can correct all that, right? Because there's a lot of great stuff that has been built over time on that activation side, but it should be secondary to what the plan is trying to accomplish. And if I can simply easily understand between like me and a major publisher partner of my database and the content they own, where are my people like active across their content and where do I have little no penetration? That tells me two things. Where can I recruit new customers? Where do I talk to my existing customers? And you can build very thoughtful plans and go much deeper on what kind of data you want to use and how you want to activate and all those other things. But it's setting you up from the get-go to have that very thoughtful, very impactful way of bringing your media to life. And it doesn't sound that game-breaking, but I think if people are honest in our industry, it, it actually is because we skipped over that and just went straight to pressing buttons. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's really like three sides of this as well, right? And so you kind of unpack that. Obviously, first-party data has never been as important as it is now. And it's always been important, right? I don't think that we don't want to forget that first-party data, the, the relations you have with your customer and the information they're giving about you, about themselves at that point in time, and then updating that on a, you know, on a consented basis over time is, like you said, the lifeblood of any BTC organization. It, there's nothing better than having that loyal connection and having that 
constant stream of accurate information about them and what they want, what they want to do. The second thing is what we've gained from the really the programmatic RTP ecosystem is this concept of automation, right? This concept of speed, this concept of efficiency. There's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I don't see any of that going away or I don't want any of that to go away. But I think, as you said, really the, the, the key thing that we've left on the table when we're, we're doing RTB and programmatic and all those other things is that media planning, the media strategy. How can I make sure that I'm building a plan that makes the most sense both for my customers, uh, if I'm a brand, and your customers, if you're a publisher? Mm-hmm. And how can we you know, really kind of work together to make the most out of our overlap, make the most out of the consumers or customers that neither one of us has been able to reach and then learn over time, right? And I think that concept of connectivity and you know insight generation is something that we really have left uh, to robots, I guess you could yeah. say, right? Yeah. To left to yeah. spreadsheets. And I think we are at a huge opportunity to do that. But my question to you through all of that is, I feel like it's such a daunting task for many organizations to think about injecting more people and more brain power into that strategy. What would you say to those individual organizations uh, who may be res- uh, you know, um, reticent to jump in or to invest people or feel that they're actually like losing market share or losing money or time by having to do this maybe publisher by publisher or network by network? Well, what I would go back to is my kind of quip that the internet is not infinite, right? You know, if, if you feel like sitting down and developing these deeper relationships and planning out something uh, at a more intimate level is a waste of your time. You're probably out there buying a lot of fraudulent inventory or in ad slots that are unseen or talking mm-hmm. to people who have no desire to buy your product or can potentially buy your product in the first place, right? Yeah, sounds like a lot of waste to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's sort of like if you want something of quality, it's, it's like, it's like going on a diet, trying to, you know, build muscle in the gym, right? You can't go, you can't just say, all right, I want to be like totally ripped and then just wake up and be ripped. You have to go in and you have to lift weights and you have to eat right. And it takes time and you build skill sets. And as the more time you invest in that, you know, the faster you can crank out those reps, right? And the, the more weight you can push, like it, it's it's a, a skill set you have to build and invest in. But is that really different than anything you've had to do as a company before? Yeah. Right? You've had to build different disciplines. You've had to adapt as different things, depending on how, how old your company is, as massive shifts, have, you know, uh, in, in how the world works have, have occurred over time. Because it, what, programmatic less than 15 years old? Right. Yeah, dude. It's, How long has advertising existed? You know, hundreds exactly. of years? Like, exactly. Thousands like, of R- years? Dude, RTB is younger than the iPhone, right? Like Ooh, the, yeah. the, the, the smartphone had come out two years before RTB hit like the mainstream, right? And you know, I think that's fascinating because if you try to, you know, parallel path the radical growth and changes, good and bad in some of that programmatic advertising, along with you know, how something like the smartphone has dramatically changed how consumers interact with the world. I think it's a really fascinating uh, example of how uh, the, the level of disruption that we've you know, experienced, it's, it's not because people have been uh, dumb or unthoughtful, but truly because people have been trying to find that way to have that cohesive connection to a consumer across all these different touch points Mm -hmm. in a world where it consistently seems to become more and more fractured. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, uh, a lot of fun stuff you could kind of uh, pull out and write about a topic like that. Well, I just think it's a little bit chasing your tail, right? Because again, we're, we've always been chasing fragmentation. It's all about centralization, consolidation, getting the single perfect view of your customer. That's never been obtainable. We both know sure. working at former you know, MTA organizations that mm-hmm. it, it really is a pipe dream. There's really great things you can get out of, of an MTA strategy, 100%, right? Um, but having that single perfect view is, is never obtainable and be, because it's, it's almost like consumers are actively trying to avoid it, right? Whether they physically are 
trying to actively avoid it. I think former colleagues of ours definitely are purposefully <laughs> trying to, to duck the system um, by yeah. creating an email address for every single you know website they visit. That's definitely on the one yes. at the end of the spectrum. And then yes. you have probably many of our parents who have a single email address they use for everything. Great, right? And there's probably most people who are in yeah. between. But there's no reason why we should be spending, I think, so much time, energy, you know, wasted investments on this perfect vision, this perfect consolidated view. When you can you can execute really powerful marketing and advertising by just focusing on developing those core relationships, even if it is going to be fragmented. And I yeah. think that's okay because I think customers see brands in different ways based on how they're consuming that information, and maybe they don't want to see a certain brand anywhere on their search feed or anywhere on their mobile device, but then maybe when they go you know, into a store or in a cab or something else, they want to see that experience. And I think let's let the consumers and customers make that decision. And then let's let the publishers let us know because they're the ones closest to that point of engagement, right? Absolutely. And I mean, let, let's be honest, a lot of the uh, ways we consume content now, you have an ad-free or an ad-supported option. Mm-hmm. So it, even if you could pull out every single person in the U.S. and have a transparent data, pseudonymized database of all of them, mm-hmm. your opportunity to talk to them from an omnichannel perspective is completely predicated on whether or not they can allow, whether or not they're going to allow ads in that given environment. And yeah. no two people are going to necessarily be, well, some, some people will be the same, right? But I mean, you know what I'm saying, right? Like there, there's there's not like a one size fits all approach. So it really is about, it's not about perfection. It's about what is good enough and what can quality information about where and how you can bring your messages to life in places where you know people are going to be, right? That in and of itself should be the driver that brings you into whatever channels that, that ends up bringing you to yeah. Uh, more so than, you know, trying to say, if I get X amount of impressions in these 15 different environments, I will magically grow my sales because that's not how it works. And again, I, I hate I hate to be a broken record or, you know, speak truth to, to the organization I currently work for, but it really does come back down to the collaboration concept, right? It's almost like, again, especially with, with you know, Papa John's working with their multiple publishers. It's almost like going to a country or a city in a country you've never been to, but you have a friend there. Who knows the landscape? They know where to eat. They know where to dine. You know, that's the same thing. But they know where to shop. They know, you know, where the cool bars are at. And I feel like collaboration is just allowing you to peek into a, a customer set that uh, that you probably know and probably have a relationship with. But you did you would never know that unless you had a translation layer like a publisher, right? And I think that's really where we're getting to what it seems like when we're using technology like clean rooms and other types of these environments where these organizations can come together, build a relationship, you know, shake hands. And they can start to get to work and roll up their sleeves. And hey, we have these customers in, in line with each other. Let me share you a little bit more about what's going on with this customer base. You, you show me a little bit more about your customer base. Mm-hmm. You know, everything's remaining completely safe and secure. But I think that's really the, the next step is developing these these symbiotic, you know, cohesion type relationships through data collaboration. That wasn't really a question. That's kind of how I'm just <laughs> But I do want to go yeah. into like, how do we make sure this is all. Um, protected and, and connected and, and making sure it's, it's secure. And so I really talk about the, the balance of privacy and performance, right? I think it's really, really important for any marketing organization to think about their balance, right? And depending on what country you live in, it may skew one level, one direction or the other. But before we get into the mechanisms, I want to talk about kind of the mindset of going into these types of, of trusted relationships. And so from your perspective, like what is a B2C organization like Papa John's role in the protection and security of that first party customer data. Yeah. So flat out, if you are an organization that collects consumer data, you are liable to keep it safe and to avoid within all reasonable, you know, uh, expectations, Mm -hmm. the leakage of that data in a harmful way. There, there is, there is nothing but that, right? And if you're an organization that thinks that because you pass data off to a third party and it's on them now, even if you can deflect a lawsuit because of how your contract is set up, right. it's the consumer is not going to blame the third party they've never heard of unless they're in our industry. They're blaming you. So if you're not taking things seriously and being very, very focused in where your data goes out and what, what kind of data comes in, 
uh, and the level of access internally and externally to that data, like you are setting yourself up to fail. Because look, the the way the new normal is going to be, the relationship with your consumer and their desire to continue to consent and opt in to sharing information is going to be equally important to the quality and consistency of the product you're selling them. 100% agree with you. It should be that simple, and it is that simple, right? Specifically in the B2C world. And so in terms of the protection of that data, obviously there's concept of data governance practices. You know, some organizations are hiring a chief privacy officer. Uh, is it a singular person or organization or department that it is their role to take on that responsibility when, you know, evaluating partners or even evaluating, you know, their own internal practices, you know, or maybe this is a leading question, or is it more responsible of every person working at that organization or somewhere in between? Like, what is your personal opinion or if Papa John's has their specific, sure. you know, kind of position? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a little bit of the uh, adage it takes a village, right? Yeah. Um, you need you need at least one person from a business, like a, a marketing and uh, consumer data uh, analytics, CRM, right, type function who knows the data is and how it goes and gets used, right? You need some, at least one person from a legal and privacy standpoint to look at things from a, this is what the laws are saying or how we're interpreting it. And here's what we believe to be a risk to our company. Uh, and then I think, you know, you need, you need to have a good understanding of who the key external stakeholders are in the application of your data, right? Every company is different, right? You may be a smaller company and you can't have the luxury of owning all your own contracts and, you know, mm. controlling everything. You got to use your agency or some other contracted third party. And that's fine. But if you're trying to construct a strategy that protects data and you're not thinking about how that company you're giving data to is using it, mm-hmm and they're the core activator of it, let's just say, you're, you're really, really missing something. So, so, you know, again, from a business lens, you, you have to think about what do you want to use that data for? What data is actually necessary versus what's not, right? Uh, because depending on your company, you can gain, you know, thousands of data points down to one or two. You can't use everything, what's good? Where do you want to bring it to life? How do you get that data there? If it's a if it's a message you want to bring to someone, like what are the conduits to do that? How are those things protected? And then along the way, your legal team is there not so much to validate your marketing plan, but to say, this is a risk, this is not a risk. This is in line with the law, this is not in line with the law. And look, that stuff is not easy. You know, a lot of companies are learning, like, frankly, we're all learning what these laws mean in real time, right? There's there's they're coming and changing so quickly, no one can be a true expert in the sense of the word, right? Uh, you have people who can be exposed to these, to, to privacy law and, and things have happened uh, in, in Europe and, you know, TCPA and every, everything. But like, as more things come to light, we're all learning. So we have to take a step back and remember, it's not about being perfect out of the gate. It's about attempting to hold the spirit of these laws up and continue to try to get better with it, building that muscle memory mm-hmm. and the skill set will come and the, you know, your, your consumers will actually appreciate it because you're going to be so much further down the road in meeting them in the place they want to be in terms of what they want you to use their data for versus how they want you to protect it relative to folks who are going to sit on their hands until someone gets sued. And so I want to talk a little bit, you know, in the time we have left, um, this isn't easy, right? I think there's two ways that, that again, we can think about this. There's the the legal sense, right? And making sure the data you collect is consented, making sure that um, the, the data remains consented. You have, you know, doing right to, right to opt out, right to deletion, all those all those requests that, that customers and consumers are legally allowed to, to you know, request on, you know, with an organization, different you know, scrutinies that are placed based, whether it's CPRA eventually in America or GDPR, 
But when it comes to actual like, okay, I have an organization, I'm an organization, you're an organization, we want to actually collaborate together and actually do some level of insight generation. I think that's an area of specificity. I think there it gets lost because it's such a new concept, right? I think everyone today is so familiar with the concept, all right, I'm going to build a data lake, I'm going to throw all this data into it, first, second, third party data. Yeah. I'm going to have these data science teams that are super expensive and really difficult to maintain, but I have to build them to mine through the data and collect all these insights. And we both know, again, working at data science focused organizations, that's really difficult to do. It takes yeah. a lot of time, it's expensive. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is that I think the ease of use of, of collecting the insights is extremely important. And I think how fast you can generate those insights is also extremely important, right, to make sure that you know, if we're heading down this path of, you know, privacy safe, privacy centricity, we need to make sure it's essentially worth the squeeze if we're a marketing organization. And that's going to come in the form of ROI, ROAS, all the different types of, you know, multiple acronym KPIs. Mm -hmm. And we need to generate those quickly. And we need to get people thinking in that direction. And so all of that being said, I want to transition to thinking about the mechanisms of actual uh, collaboration, the mechanisms of actual computation, right? Actually doing the math uh, across the data sets and extracting those insights. And so there's a multitude of different ways in which we can describe that data. I think the most common right now is the data clean room, right? An environment where multiple parties can come together, they can connect their data, they can extract insights, and they can either activate the data if that's what they want to do, they can measure, they can build different types of, of models. Um, and so what's just your point of view on there? Like, where is your, what's your point of view on actual privacy first tech? that marketers are now investing in. You are one of those marketers hopefully investing in that world. Give us a little insight into where you see that landscape today, where you see it going, and where the pitfalls or opportunities are for anyone listening. Yeah, so I think you know we have to acknowledge that where we're at today, right, like the current set of market leaders in privacy compliance, right, the companies that have been around for, for like basically since RTB's inception, yeah. we're talking about Live Ramp, New Star, Experian, et cetera, those entities, right, they're sort of in that pseudonymization and control and orchestration of their customers' data, mm -hmm. right? So you pass it off and they find a way to match it to what they know and then they hand it off and they're essentially like the switchboard operator yeah. for data sets. And that is all well and good. And there's a lot of things you can do with that that are, are protecting your clients are protecting your customers and your clients. Yeah. Uh, but I think what we're moving towards and what we're seeing with, you know, what's happened in Europe and how things are changing here in the U S is that that probably won't be enough in the, in the mid to long term. And I think what you're going to really see is this need to have much more direct control of the data owners themselves mm -hmm. in a confined environment with predetermined use cases for how that data is leveraged and then rules and governance around when and how data is deleted, how it's brought together, uh, all those sorts of things, um, which, you know, may not sound too different than what the onboarders do, but there is a real nuance there in that instead of it being handed off to the third party to then have them process and kick out what well, you're essentially you know, moving to is an entity that helps you mix and match data directly with the partner or subset of partners you need to mm -hmm. in an environment wholly owned between you and those entities, right? Uh, completely independent of that broader ID spine the traditional players have, if right. that makes sense. Yeah. So it's more fluid. So it almost seems like it's also more of a, of a, of a temporary instance, it seems right. So, if you're trying to build a campaign with a subset of publishers, um, why not spin up a clean room? We can do a collaboration, and then we can go about our day. And you can, and, you know, can re-engage with that experience if you'd like to. But I think, I mean, that's how I think about a clean room environment as a temporary instance that allows right. a specific group of like-minded marketers to work together to for some end goal. And you know, whether it's a publisher owned and operated clean room, you know, whether it's a brand operate owned and operated clean room or some, you know, intermediary. Um, that's actually a question I have for you. Like who who would own the clean room? Like who who should be responsible for what's happening and the permissions is it one party, all parties, a, a mixture of parties? I'm just curious your point of view. I mean, again, this is a net, this is you know, yeah, new area. So I'm very curious, like you know, where you would like it to be. <laughs> yeah, as well. So yeah, yeah. So this is where 
it's it's a little wonky. I think what I what I believe it should be, but I think ultimately <laughs> the the technology vendor you're utilizing to mix and match data, delete data when necessary, control levels of exposure, noise generation, etc. There's a base set of standards and rules that have to exist within the contract with that entity, right? right? A certain set of liability on them for being the one that wants to process those things in that confined environment. The cleaner and operator you're talking yes. about? Yes, the cleaner and operator. Thank you. Um, and to me, that's more of like the, the logistics portion has to be owned by the clean room operator. Yeah. And I think the users of the clean room, right, they have to define the rules around what can go in, how it should be used, and what the expected output really needs to be. Uh, that that might sound really difficult. Uh, I think it's difficult for the clean room operator, right, uh, more so than it is for the uh, folks who want to use it because is understanding what data you want to use and how that much different than saying, yeah. where do I want to place my ad? Why? In which place? It really isn't, right? Um, it's, it's frankly a much more transparent and uh, thoughtful way of doing the song and dance that's done traditionally, right? Because I, look, I can go back to my time as a publisher and, you know, getting RFPs, trying to beat out ESPN uh, to get inventory sold on Sports Illustrated, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing we're hearing is like the agency wants more reach. We have to figure out how to get more reach. Uh, going into the audience tools we had on site and manipulating the rules to make the different segments we were supposed to provide become larger, right? Like making them less stringent. Um, I bring that up to say there is this song and dance today when you're not completely transparent with one another, where the publisher is trying to win your business, doesn't quite know everything that's going on. So they might be incentivized to take that shortcut, like I just mentioned, in whatever aspect they can. Then conversely, some brands are holding back information and trying to find ways uh, in which to gain unnecessary leverage, yeah. right, against the publisher. It's like you're not, you're not showing all of your cards, right? It's a little yeah. bit of poker that you have to play. Yeah. Even though yeah. you have a beneficial relationship in the current state of, of the way the tech stack works, there's still a little bit of holding out because you don't necessarily trust that other actor. There's something else to gain individually, right? Right. Yeah. And I, I get it to a point, but in the confines of what clean rooms are promising, should the functionality truly exist and the mm -hmm. various ways in which uh, clean room operators are developing privacy safe workflows uh, right. functionally they're supposed to it makes it much easier to do that right i mean and you and i know this from you know when i was a new start client right the the amount of times when i was at coke we were trying to get people to do data collaboration and the response was you can give me your data i will give you something back right and then i would kind of retort of like why can't I have your data mix it with mine and give you something back? Mm -hmm. The response then being, well, it's not, you know, uh, we, we take our consumer's privacy very seriously. There's data leakage. We can't possibly share our data to which I would say, so is our consumer's privacy not important that we can right. give it to you. Exactly. And then the conversation would devolve, right? Uh, and, and again, like it's 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 because there wasn't that easy place to bring this information, to have all those legal safeguards, to have the honest dialogue around what the two parties know. And I think the 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 long term massive benefit we're going to have from this concept of the clean room is being able to have that conversation, and then all the great work that can come from that, right? Because right. I mean, like, look, I. Of course, you know, measurements in my title, I've not really talked a lot about measurement in the concept of the clean room because first, I just want to get the planning structure built in a way that's going to drive value and all the other stuff is going to come. The way you want to build models with, with your publishers and other partners to do differentiated segmentation will come. What form of closed loop versus like mini... MTA universes you create with a subset of partners will come. All that will yeah. appear over time. 
but it will not appear until the dollars shift into this way of working. And the dollars won't shift until the planning in and of itself yeah. really stems from this type of collaboration. I completely agree. And again, it, I'm not going to say easy, but in the sense that privacy is easy, privacy is and never should be easy. But I feel like InfoSum and our point of view from a data collaboration, you know, you know, clean room partner uh, of the ecosystem is that you shouldn't have to worry about privacy if the right technology is in place. So you can just worry on the strat, worry about the strategy. I think that's extremely important for marketers, and and I think it's really important for marketers to to think about when they're planning their future strategies is not to worry about the privacy tech, right? There should be standards. There should be, um, you know, baseline barrier to entries for any privacy tech to be used in a clean room context. And I think they were still working on educating the market of that. But I think let's get back to the strategy and let's, let's just assume that the privacy tech is working as it should, as long as it's been vetted um, by, by the right people and individuals. Um, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, go ahead. No, just saying absolutely, right? And I think the the concept we're talking about in this clean room universe, I think it's inviting your InfoSec team and other entities to get under the hood a bit more than what we've seen historically. Yep. So, you know, I think if you can bring the right people from those sort of entities in yeah. and they get their buy-off and you can have the kind of dialogue and results you want with the partners who would bring data to the table there, you would have to assume that things are working as they should and you can focus on deriving value That's uh, it. Yeah. versus, you know, trying to do whack-a-mole with data leakage. There should the be nothing system. to hide. Right. I mean, I think, yeah. I think just like we do an RFP RFI process, same thing should happen for the clean room vendor of your choice when you're looking to do any investments. And again, that's that's our recommendation at InfoSum is if you want to learn more about the technology, ask the questions, get the right people to ask the questions, bring your tech folks in, bring your InfoSec people in, bring your privacy experts in. Because if the privacy tech is real, if it's, if it's valuable, then there should be nothing to hide behind. And you shouldn't because again, it's privacy. And I and like my, my old adage term that I would say is you don't F with privacy and you need to make sure that that is buttoned up and then focus on the strategic eff efforts that you're putting with forth, you know, with your partners. Um, so that's, that's my sign off. You'll see I love it. signature moving forward. So again, I just want to thank you for joining the show. If there's anything else that we didn't cover, we can have you back on to, to chat about in the future. But uh, Chris Hawk, thanks for uh, taking the time with us to, you know, to talk about clean rooms, data collaboration, you know, eliminating the bad tech. A uh, lot of good snippets that we got from you today. So thank you, sir. Thanks again for having me. I had a blast and I look forward to the next time. Thanks again to Chris for joining us for this episode of Identity Architects. It felt like there was a ton more we could have dived into, especially around the role of privacy enhancing technologies. So a round two should definitely be on the books. If you'd like to be a guest on Identity Architects, or if you'd like to nominate someone to be on the podcast, don't forget that you can reach out to us on podcasts at infosum.com. All that leaves for me to do is to remind you to hit that subscribe button so you know when the next episode of Identity Architects lands. But until then, thanks for listening.